0: morning, everyone. Good morning. We have a few announcements. You know what they are? You already know what they are? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Do you? you
0: have them memorized? Wednesdays, Wednesdays, we go to the homeless, and there's Bible study on, I forgot, for women,
1: it's on
0: July. It's on Thursdays? Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Let's see if you're right. Now we got it going. <gasps> Feed the on Wednesdays. except It says every Wednesday, but not this Wednesday. Not the last Wednesday of the month. They take a break. I know we should probably change that, huh? So, except the last Wednesday of the month. But, not this Wednesday, but next Wednesday... You can come and feed the homeless. You girls going? Sure. Yes. Good Good answer. The next women's study is July 7th. Thursday, July 7th. 6 p.m. Yep. Two
2: days after July
0: 4th. There you go. The next men's study is Saturday, July 9th. So we change it up. Yes, we change that up. Because the first Saturday of the month is next weekend, and that's uh, 4th of July weekend. So that doesn't really work. So we changed that up. We met yesterday, and then we'll meet on the 9th. So it was good. Except Joel got bored when we, at the end when we started talking about concrete, and then left <laughs> left the, the discussion. And,
1: so. and, those are good stuff. and they'll be fed the dogs.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Lots of construction guys. And we ran into Pete yesterday and he wants to join another construction guy. So I just find that interesting. All of the men at the group are all in construction. (laughs) Um, The next youth night is the Thursday after the women's study. Do you got that on your calendar, Kylie? The 14th? No. And then if you want email updates, if you give me your email i send out just a, a weekly update with what we got going on as a reminder
2: are you guys getting the emails
0: do you get them Leanne says she got hers yeah yeah, them okay. yeah. okay thank you thank you so, you're welcome you're welcome so, so that's the announcements you already knew they were coming though yeah you're so smart well, yeah. let's let's pray dear father i just thank you so much for this day I thank you for this time to come together to worship you, to learn more about you, about your will, about your son Jesus, about the work that you do in our lives, about your love for us, about how you guide us, how you never leave us, you never forsake us, you're always with us. Jesus, I thank you for your sacrifice on the cross, for the forgiveness in each and every one of our sins. Lord, I thank you for the way that you, you do lead and guide us. I ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit today an overflowing portion, that you would help us to receive the words that you have for us. Um, Help us to receive those with an open heart and open mind that we would have a desire to be more like you. I ask that you would watch over our community, that you would continue to bless it, but that you would draw this community closer to you, that you would draw our leaders closer to you in this community and in this state and in this nation. I thank you for the work that you're doing in our lives and in their lives continue to draw them closer to you make the decisions that you want them to make the reason that you put them there it's in jesus name i pray all these things amen so we are going to continue on in romans chapter three but we have lots to cover today because a few i don't know i don't like the word rapid trails but a few side things that we're going to cover but it's important because it lays the foundation of who Jesus is, the work that he does in our lives, and the complexity of the Bible, you know, how God wrote this, and it all weaves together, and it all points to Jesus, and I just find that very amazing, very fascinating, but we're going to start in Romans chapter 3, <coughs> in verse 21, um, and then we're going to be kind of in a, quite a few places, but we'll always come back to Romans, and we'll finish out Romans chapter 3 today, so... So here, Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. And that part's important. No matter who we are. So today we're in the New Living Translation, and we kind of go back and forth. Sometimes the New Living Translation, sometimes the New American Standard Bible, sometimes the King James Version. Um, And it's just, or just pray about it, and, and whatever I think makes it clearest, what God's trying to tell us, what God has for us in His Word. And today I think it's out of the New Living Translation. And same last Sunday, I think that made it the clearest so, to recap how we got to this point, you know, Paul started out in chapter 1, and right away, at the beginning of the chapter, he gives us the good news of Jesus. You know, Paul explains that salvation is available to everyone who believes. Then Paul points out the various um, sins in our lives, and reminds us of God's anger towards those sins. That, that God doesn't, um, doesn't look lightly on sin, God takes sin seriously. Paul then goes on to remind us that we're all sinners. No one is perfect. No one is sinless. Um, then he warns us about judging others, looking down on others. He says we have enough of our own problems to worry about. You know? And then we looked at what Jesus said about that. And Jesus said, before you're going to judge someone else, you need to. before you judge your brother, you need to remove the log from your own eye. Before you can even think about removing the speck from your brother's eye. And we think about that judgment, you know, what is that? It's definitely a judgment of condemnation. Oh, that person's not saved. That person's not a believer. We're definitely told not to do that. We are told to judge and discern what's right and wrong. But before we go worrying about the wrongs in other people's lives, we're supposed to be focused on our own lives. And I think of myself and how that works, particularly in marriage, before I get worried about what Shannon's doing wrong, I need to focus on what am I doing wrong? Um, and that really speaks to me there on the what Paul was saying about judgment. Then Paul made it clear that God isn't after sacrifices or sacraments. And he uses circumcision as an example, and we went through that. But God's after our hearts. And if our hearts aren't right with God, then everything else we do is in vain. The good works that you do is in vain if you don't have the right heart with God. If you haven't asked Jesus into your life, if you're not walking with God, you know, these good works are, are more or less worthless. They'll be burned up. Um, when you, when you sit before Jesus at the Bay, of Christ for believers. Um, and then Paul puts everyone on a level playing field again, telling us that we have all sinned and we all fall short of God's glory. All of us. No one is perfect. Not one. We all need Jesus. Um, far enough apart from God, there is no limit to the amount of sin we're capable of. Paul makes that clear. He takes us um, into the Old Testament and reminds us of that. And and we looked at that and what that meant. Um, And if you're thinking, oh, yeah, not me. I'm a good person. Well, you're lying to yourself. Only God is good. Um, Paul took us back to the Old Testament. He took us to Psalms 14 and Psalms 53, where he reminded us that the foolish choose to remain ignorant of God. And the wicked refuse to live in God's truths. So these are choices that, that people make. The, the truth is out there. God's made himself known to the whole world. And it's our choice to walk in those truths or to ignore them, to refuse them, to want to continue on in sinful ways. Um, and then further, he reminds us... Um, it's a choice how we choose to live our lives. We can live our lives for God, or we can live our lives for ourselves. Um, Paul took us back to Isaiah chapter 59, where he reminds us that God is not too weak to save us, but it is our sin that separates us from God. So we talked um, about this. Without confession of sin, there can be no repentance of the heart. And without repentance in the heart, there's no room for Jesus in our lives. Um, Without repentance... We see no need for Jesus in our lives. We don't need Jesus because we haven't done anything wrong when we're not repentant. And that's not true. We've done plenty that's wrong. We just don't want to admit it. We don't want to admit that we need a Savior, that this is bigger than us, that the mistakes we've made, there's no getting out of. There's no lying our way out, no manipulating our way out of them, that the only way out of them is through the truth, the truth that Jesus Christ died for us on the cross, Paid the penalty for our sins. And Paul's beginning to make that clear here. He'll make that clear through the end of the chapter. So, but God doesn't leave us there. Doesn't leave us with no hope. Because God, we're told, is the God of hope. And God's hope is not a hope, like a, a wishful thinking. Oh, I hope today's a good day. No, God is the God of hope. And the hope that God provides is confidence. Um, that he makes it certain We have the hope of salvation. It's not, I hope I'm saved. No, it's a guarantee that you're saved. If you've asked Jesus into your life, confess with your mouth that he is God and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, period, end of story. We've been over that quite a few times. Um, So... We read through that that God promised long ago the Messiah to come. Um, So God shows us here in Romans chapter 3 that a way to be made right with him without keeping the perfection of the law and that way is through Jesus and that he promised that. We read in verse 21 here that he promised that In the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. So what he's saying there is in the Old Testament, long ago, God made the promise of the Messiah. And we get to see that from the beginning. We get to see that in Genesis, at the fall of man. We've been through this, that God's promise after the fall of man was that the seed of the woman uh, would be an enmity with the seed of Satan. And the seed of the woman was important because women don't have seed, men have seed. So that spoke of the virgin birth. So right away, from the beginning, clear back in Genesis, we read of the promise of the Messiah, that Jesus would come, be born of a virgin. So God doesn't leave us where we're at. Um, but we are going to take a look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. And we're going to be bouncing around quite a few places, and all of it will be up on the screen. Um, but the reason we're going to go there, when we're looking at verse 22 here in Romans 3.22... We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. So how are we made right with God? By placing our faith in Jesus. The truth of Jesus, the good news of salvation, is available to everyone, no matter who you are. So I think that's made more clear here in Colossians. God explains that. Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. God's going to clear this up um, and go into more detail, I think. And that's the importance of the whole Bible. And that is why we we do go all throughout the Bible. While we're studying through Romans, we don't just stay at Romans. We look at the whole council. And we're going to get into that today. And what does God's word say about that? And I think it's amazing. Um, So here in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, civilized, slave or free, Christ is all that matters, and he lives in all of us. So we were told just before in in Romans that no matter who you are, salvation is available to you, Jesus is available to you. And here we're told that Jesus is all that matters. He lives in all of us, and it doesn't matter who we are, Jew or Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave, free. Jesus, Christ is all that matters. Religion doesn't matter. Christ is all that matters. Not I'm Catholic, I'm Baptist, I'm Presbyterian, I'm non-denominational, I'm Calvary Chapel. None of that matters. Christ is all that matters. Not I'm Republican or I'm Democrat. Not I'm conservative or I'm liberal. Christ is all that matters. Not, I'm vaccinated or unvaccinated, I'm masked or unmasked, Christ is all that matters. Not, I'm black or white or brown or any other color, there is no room for racism found in Christ. (laughs) When we look at the Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus knocked out and walked through those those boundaries that men put up, these racist boundaries. And that very much was a racist thing back then. The Samaritans were viewed by the Jews as a half-breed as a different race, as a lower kind of people. Not true, not true at all. Jesus goes and, and meets with them, walks through that. And I'm sure his disciples would have been shocked. So he sets the example. Um, and we oftentimes define racism as derogatory or discriminatory. And yes, that absolutely is. But it doesn't end there. You have to ask yourself the statements that get made. Would you make those same statements if the person you're making them about had the same color skin as you? Um, and if the answer is no, then, then that is a, a racist thing. Um, so the best way I've ever heard it described is is a pastor up in Aurora listening to him and he was talking, uh, the color of his skin is black, but he was talking about how he was working on his air conditioner on the side of his house and he lives in Aurora and someone calls the police on him, says that it looks like he's breaking into his house. Now, would you make that that phone call to the police if it was somebody else, if they had different color skin? And my my thought is probably not. So then he has to go through and prove that he owns the house, that he that's his home, he's not breaking in, you know, and those are the things that oftentimes, I think, get overlooked. While this person may have thought they were doing a good thing, oh, it looks like someone's breaking into a house, no, he's just working on his air conditioner, you know, trying to get it cool in the heat of the summer. Um, so... It's things like that, and there's no room for it in Christ. Christ is all that matters. He makes that clear. We don't need to identify ourselves as, as these different things. Oh, I'm a Catholic. Oh, I'm this, I'm that. No, I'm a Christian. End of story. Not, I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat. I'm a Christian. End of story. God makes that clear. Salvation is available to everyone. He doesn't limit it to any group any denomination any specific it's available to all and it's very important that we understand that all are welcome to come to him and we should love all and we need to be mindful of how we treat others and we need to be mindful of how we judge others we've already been through this paul made it clear on that so if we go back to romans we'll go back to romans 3:23. Romans 3 23 for everyone has sinned we all fall short of God's glorious standard yet God with undeserved kindness declares that we are righteous he did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins so here Paul puts us all in the same playing field we've all sinned no one is better than anyone else we all need Jesus we all fall short of God's glorious standards um God's kindness is undeserved. Um, before we came to Him, we've done nothing to deserve His kindness, nothing to deserve His favor. Um, Paul explains that we're declared righteous with God, um, and it's through the blood of Jesus Christ and His sacrifice on the cross that we're declared righteous with God. And our belief in that. Um, for a little deeper look into this, though, we're going to jump over to Ephesians chapter two, verse eight. Um, and here in Ephesians, Paul makes it clear who deserves the credit for salvation. You know, where does that lie? And oftentimes, we are still, even after we become saved, we're still focused on ourselves. Um, and have a tendency to think, look what I've done. Look at the good works I've done for God. Um, so, but he, God makes it clear here in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10 is where we'll be reading. So God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. This is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things you have done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. So, justice is getting what we deserve. Mercy is is not getting what we deserve so when i get pulled over for speeding and i'm doing 25 mile an hour over the speed limit i deserve a ticket and a fine for doing 25 mile an hour over the speed limit but oftentimes you get pulled over and the officer shows you mercy well you were speeding but i'm going to write your ticket for nine mile an hour over instead of what you were actually doing that's mercy that's not getting what we deserved right but then grace Grace takes it one step further, and grace, not only do we not get what we deserve, but we get rewarded. We get um, God's favor. We get God's salvation. There's nothing we did to deserve it, nothing we did to earn it, but that's what grace is. Grace is not only not getting what we deserve, but getting a gift instead, um, And it's not because of anything we did. It's not because of our works. It's because of God and the work that he did, the work that Jesus did on the cross. So none of us can boast that we're saved. Um, The only way we're saved is by receiving Jesus' finished work on the cross. Um, While we're not saved by our works, he does make it clear at the end of, of verse 10 here that God did plan works for us to do. So our works don't save us. That's made very clear here. But... God does have good works for us to step into, that he did have a plan for us. We'll go back to Romans 3.25. So Romans 3, verse 25. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in the present time. God God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he declares sinners to be right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. So twice we're told here that God is fair. And the second time we're told that God is fair and he's also just. So I want to expand on that. We're going to take a, a look at quite a few other verses to, to see just how fair and just God is. And how is he able to, to judge? And how is he able to declare sinners to be right with him? What gives him that right um, and first, we're going to go to Deuteronomy chapter 32, starting in verse 3. Um, and like I said, we have quite a few verses, but I think what's the amazing part is that we're going to go through quite a few places in the Bible, and it all ties together. And this, to me, just confirms the fact that men didn't write the Bible. Men may have pinned the Bible, um, but men didn't write it. Men didn't come up with the content for it. That was God that came up with the content. God um, made it clear to these men what to write down. Um, and it's woven so tight and, and everything in the Bible is, is woven together. And we're going to get a chance to see that, which I think is awesome. I, I love to see this. And it all points to Jesus. That's the other thing that we're going to look at through all these verses. It all points to Jesus um, from the Old Testament to the New. So, so starting here in Deuteronomy 32, verse 3. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. How glorious is our God. He is the rock. His deeds are perfect. Everything he does is just and fair. He is a faithful God who does no wrong. How just and upright he is. So here, chapter 32 is also known as the Song of Moses. So Moses is trying to teach the people here towards the end of his life and reaffirm to them who God is. What is God's character? Um, God is just and fair, able to judge because he does no wrong. God is perfect, and Jesus lived the perfect life here on earth. That's why death could not hold him. For the penalty of sin is death, but Jesus committed no sins, so death couldn't hold him. And what gives Jesus the right to judge? Because Jesus is perfect. Because Jesus is God, God is perfect. Here we read that, and I believe that what God writes is is what he meant to say, and that he explains to us who he is and and why. Um, And to to go more into that, we're going to jump over to Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 4. And we'll look at why is Jesus able to judge us, and how does he judge us. So here in Isaiah, Isaiah is, is going to prophesy about the Messiah to come, and he's going to talk about who Jesus is and how he's going to come. So here in Isaiah chapter 11, verse one through four, out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. Yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root and the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will delight in obeying the Lord. He will not judge by appearance, nor make decisions based on hearsay. He will give justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the exploited. The earth will shake at the force of his word, and one breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. So here Isaiah prophesies that Jesus will be born of David's family line. We see that to be true. that the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, we see this at the baptism when John the Baptist baptized Jesus, and this dove, the spirit, the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove, and we get to hear audibly a voice from heaven, God the Father speaking, "This is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased." So we get to see that take place. Um, Jesus, we get to read here, is going to be fully human and fully God. So. Where we get to, where we get to see that is that at the end of verse two, there, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he, I'm oh, sorry, so that's the end of verse two, and then verse three, he will delight in obeying the Lord. That's the human aspect of it. Jesus was fully human. Jesus had the fear of the Lord. Jesus delighted in obeying the Lord and doing the Father's will. Jesus often was out in the wilderness, praying, um, seeking God's will. Because while he was fully human, he was fully God, but the fully human part of him was still learning who God was and what his will was. And the best way for Jesus to discern the will of the Father was to spend time in prayer. And you see that so many times. Before he picked the 12 disciples, he was in prayer the entire night before that. You know, to me, it just it further speaks to his humanity and how much we need prayer and how much we need to spend time with god and seek his will if jesus who is fully human and fully god and i don't quite understand the whole concept there in my mind but he gives the example of what it means to be fully human and fully dependent on god to fear him another way i've heard that is to live in awe of god you know we kind of went through this with the authorities we can live in fear of the authority if we're doing wrong or We can live in peace with the authority when we're doing right. So we can live in fear of God if we're doing wrong. But if we're doing right in our lives, we can live in that awe of God, of how amazing he is. And then we can delight in obeying the Lord. And that's what Jesus did. That's the example he gave us. So here we read that he's going to be fully human and fully God, that he'll fear God, um, but he'll delight in him. Isaiah makes it clear the ways that he will judge um, in fair decisions, the fair decisions that he will make, that he won't judge um, like Paul's told us not to judge. He won't, we read this before, he's not going to judge by, um, by appearance and he's not going to judge by the rumors that he hears. He's going to judge right and fair by the truth and by facts, um, which is, should be very reassuring to us um, that he is right and he will judge fairly all the world. All of us. Um, And then at the end here, this is important. We're going to come back to this here at the end also. But that he, with his word, will destroy his enemies. Um, So we're going to take a look at what God means by his word. And what does Jesus' word mean? Um, And like I say, we have quite a few verses to go that'll tie this all together. But that is what I love about the Bible. It all ties together. It all points to Jesus. So the first one that we're going to go to is 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 20. Um, I just want to expand on Jesus and His Word. Um, just how interwoven the Bible is and just how amazing that is. So here in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. Above all you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit, and they spoke from God. So, Isaiah or any of the other prophets didn't write down their own thoughts. They wrote down what God gave them to write down. God guided them. Um, And that's the only way that that someone could be prophetic and speak what's going to happen in the future. The only one that knows what's going to happen in the future is God. Not a tarot card reading, not signs from astrology, but God. God knows what the future holds, and God is the only one that knows what the future holds. So for these people to be able to write down what's going to happen in the future, that Jesus would be born of the line of David, the attributes that he would have, how he would die... Only God could do that. So, then God makes it clear here that all of the prophecy they wrote down came from Him. Now, we'll expand on this idea in Second Timothy, chapter three, starting in verse um, sixteen, and kind of go into why is God's word so important. So, here, Second Timothy, chapter three, starting in verse sixteen, all Scripture is inspired by God. And is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. So the first word here in verse 16, all. That's an important word. Um, And in the Greek, that's the word pos. And with the grammatical structure in the Greek that we see here, that's translated the whole. So all or the whole. And this is important because there's lots of people over the years that have taken the Bible out of context. And we went over this last week. You know, we found two places in the Bible that talk about the, there is no God, right? And if we take it out of context, yes, you can make the Bible say that. But when we looked at the whole verse, a fool in his heart says there is no God. And that's oftentimes, so God has given us the Bible for doctrine, for teaching. But people will take one verse and make a doctrine out of it. But that's not what it's saying here. It's talking about the whole scripture or the whole Bible is good to teach us. Not an individual verse or a sentence um, is meant for doctrine, but the whole Bible. And there's a few places that this comes up. Um, particularly with the Catholic Church, growing up Catholic, I remember a lot of this, um, but the, the sacrament of communion, the Catholic Church teaches that that is the body and that is the blood of Jesus. Now there's a verse where Jesus said, this is my body and this is my blood. And if you take that one verse and make a doctrine out of it, you're incorrect because the scripture, what the Bible say right here is that the whole Bible is inspired by God all, all, every word is but that the whole Bible as a whole is meant for teaching so this makes sense the whole Bible so if I just take that one verse but I don't look at all the other verses that talk about communion because all the other verses that talk about communion are talking about is it being symbolic do this in remembrance of Jesus so when I look at the whole Bible I don't come to that conclusion does that make sense if I take that one verse where Jesus said this is my body and this is my blood, that's one verse. But when I look at all the other verses that talk about communion and how we're to celebrate the Lord's Supper um, and that we're to do it in remembrance of him and that the, the bread is a reminder of his broken body, that the juice or the wine is a reminder of his blood shed for us. Those are what all the other verses say. So when I look at it as a whole, that's the, that's the teaching, that's the doctrine, that's how we're to live um, Does that make sense, kind of? We're not to take the one verse. And I just think it's so important, this word pos. In the the structure it is, it means the whole. So it's not all scripture, not every single line or every single sentence I can make a doctrine out of. Because I can make a doctrine that there is no God because there's a sentence in the Bible that says that. But that's not true. When I look at the whole Bible, that's how we use it for teaching to guide us what's right and wrong. I think another example of this is oftentimes people in polygamy will say, well, the Bible talks about polygamy. Well, yes, it does. But when you look at the whole Bible, God made it very clear. Marriage is one woman, one man for life, period. That's it. Until death do them part, right? So when I look at the whole Bible, that's what it is. Polygamy is, is yes, written into the Bible is to give us a, a background and a and to, uh, further understanding of what people were doing at the time, but God is not justifying it. And people will do that. People will take one part of the Bible and say, Oh, this justifies what I'm doing. No, that's not true. You have to look at the whole Bible before you can start making doctrine and teaching others. so, so I hope that makes sense because it's important um, and it, it goes to God's word. This, the Bible is God's word. And that he gives it to us to, to show us what's right and wrong in our lives. And that he gives it to us to equip us to do the good work that he's called us to do. So there's um, an equipping that goes on. It prepares us for the life that we're about to live. For the, the Christian walk that we're going to step into. The Bible prepares us for that. And the best way to get prepared for that is to spend time in God's word every single day. Um, you know, Even if it's just a verse a day. I would challenge you, you know, to expand on that, you know, is it a chapter a day? Can you spend five minutes a day reading God's word? Um, and he's going to prepare you for what you're about to face that day. And it's amazing how he does it. I like to just pick a book of the Bible and, and read through it and then pick another one and read through it. And it's always amazing that a lot of times what I go through that day, I'd already read about that morning. God had already prepared me for what I was about to face. And it was an encouraging um, way to, and a reminder that that God is in control. He's over my life, even when I'm, even when I'm not, and I rarely ever am. If at any times am I ever in control of my life, so, um, and that's is also why when we teach, we teach through the whole Bible, you know, chapter and verse through each book, from Genesis to Revelation, all the Bible. It's all important. It all um, points to Jesus. So with that we're going to go to Ephesians 6.17. Oh. We're going to make some more biblical connections to what God says about his word. And this is important. So we've been over this before. We went through the armor of God. Um, put on the Ephesians 6.17. says, put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. Um, so God makes it clear here that the sword of the spirit is his word. So there's that connection here. When we talk about the sword of the spirit, that's God's word. Okay. So we make that connection. The next connection we'll make is in first Peter chapter one, verse 23. If you have been born again, but not I'm sorry, but if, you, if you've been born again, but not to a life that will quickly end. Your new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living word of God. So here we make the connection that God's word is eternal and it's living. And there's a, a few places we can go with that, um, expand on that. Um, and we'll get to it. The God's word is living because it is a living being. We'll expand on that here in a minute, but the one is that God's Word is living, so the Bible is the living word, and oftentimes you can read the Bible and and years later months later be reading the same thing and it speaks to you in a different way. it's the living Word of God and part of that is because we're always in different circumstances different times in our life different seasons in our life, and the Bible will speak to us to meet us where we're at God's Word will meet us where we are um, and it's amazing how it works and in, and I've never you run into people who have been Christians for 30, 40, 50 years and are still studying through the Bible and still learning new things. You know, God never stops with what, what he shows us and what he's able to teach us. And I've always found that to be amazing, to talk to those people and, and to hear their excitement. You know, oh, look what God showed me. I've read through this verse a hundred times and, and this time he showed me this or I understood this more. So I always find that to be amazing. So that is definitely part of God's living word. Um, Let's jump over to Hebrews 4.12. Just to more expand on what God means in his entirety when he says his word. So Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword cutting between soul and spirit between joint and marrow it exposes our innermost thoughts and desires so again god's word is alive um, but now we're told that it's powerful Um, here god's word is related not just to a sword but to the sharpest two-edged sword the sharpest sword ever made that's what god's word is related to cutting between right and wrong in our lives Um, and and the reason that he talks about it being so sharp is that it rightly divides you know and it leaves no gray area it it clearly makes clear what's right in our lives and what's wrong in our lives Um, with no gray no area left unexposed Um, so with that understanding we're going to go to to John chapter 1 and this is one that I would actually turn to so John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Um, so at this point, through this, this study on what the Word of God is, this little mini-study we're doing, this little sidetrack that we've taken, um, at this point, the Bible, we learned that the Bible was penned by men, but it was written by God's guidance. Um, God's whole Word is meant to teach us. God's word is meant to point out the right and wrong in our lives. Um, God's word is meant to equip us and prepare us for the good work that he's prepared for us. God's word is also related to the sword, and not just any sword, but the sharpest two-edged sword, leaving no room for ambiguity. And that word ambiguity is, you know, any gray areas, any misconceptions, any, well, this could go one way or the other. this, that word sounds big and I didn't know what it meant until I was in construction and you had these specifications that you were supposed to follow and you'd have multiple versions of these specs and that oftentimes there'd be ambiguity well this spec says I can do this and this specification says I can do this and they both say the opposite well that's not what God's word says that's why it's, God's word is very sharp rightly dividing leaving no room for ambiguity no room for well I can be a polygamist or I could be a, 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 a one woman husband. No, no, there's no room for both. God's word rightly divides, if that makes sense to you guys. Um, and God's word is eternal, living, and powerful. We've, we've learned that in this little sidetrack. Um, and now we're going to make one last connection to God's word. And this is probably the most important connection. And I love this connection. So, picking up in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 5, this is how John introduces Jesus to the world. Um, So, in the beginning, the Word, and I find it very interesting that the Word is capitalized here. So, in the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through Him. And nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. So this is John's introduction to Jesus. Um, John, who was guided by the Holy Spirit to write this. So I want to read it through again, because the word and all the pronouns, he's speaking of Jesus. So when I read it through again, and I'm going to take all the pronouns and just replace it with Jesus, and I'm going to replace the word with Jesus. So in the beginning, Jesus already existed. Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Jesus existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through Jesus, and nothing was created except through Jesus. Jesus gave life to everything that was created, and Jesus' life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. So I love that. I just love how John introduces Jesus. So we've learned that the God's word um, is related to the sword, but God's word is Jesus. Jesus is the word of God. Um, that you know, in the beginning of time, Jesus already existed. God exists outside the constraints of time. And that's a, that's a tough one for us to understand. You know, people want to say, well, who created God? Well, nobody created God. Well, when did God start? Well, God never started. God lives outside this idea of time that we have. He's outside of time and matter. He's always existed. He lives now and he always will exist. That's, that's, e- inter- that's eternality. That's being eternal. Um, so... At the beginning of time, Jesus already existed. Um, Jesus was with God in the beginning, and Jesus is, was, and is God. Um, Everything that was created was created through him, through Jesus. And everything that has life, that life came from Jesus. Um, Jesus is the light of the world, and nothing can extinguish Jesus' light. So now we've established that Jesus is God's word, is the word. And we're going to get to see that here in both the beginning of the Bible and the end. Which I, like I said, I just think it's... I love how it all connects. So we're going to look quickly at Genesis chapter 1 verse 3. Um, so Genesis chapter 1 verse 3. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. So how powerful is that? So Jesus... We're told that he's, he's the one that creates. Jesus says, let there be light, and there was light. He spoke it into existence. Let there be light, just like that, light is created. How powerful is that? How powerful is his word? Do you see the connection here? How amazing that is? So, 2 Thessalonians 2.8. We'll get to see also how things end. We read earlier that, that he'll defeat his enemies with his word. And this is important. Um, so second thessalonians 2 verse 8 then the man of lawlessness will be revealed but the lord jesus will kill him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him by the splendor of his coming so jesus is going to destroy his enemies he's going to kill his enemies with the breath of his mouth with his word so his word speaks creation into existence his word also defeats his enemies because his word is truth. He is right. He is perfect. He is capable to judge. And his word guides us through life. His word is so important. God puts a lot of emphasis on his word and relates his word to his son and says that these are, these are the same. In John chapter 4, that's what he's saying. Or John chapter 1, that's what he's saying. That, that the word of God and Jesus is the same. Make sense? So, um, so Isaiah, we read through this. Isaiah said in chapter 11, verse four, that the earth will shake at the force of his word and one breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. Um, and we, we get to see this here in Thessalonians and we're going to expand on that, this in revelation. Um, so here we read that Jesus destroyed the man of lawlessness with one breath of his mouth. Um, but I do want to go to Revelation. We're going to go to two places. Um, we're going to start in chapter 1, verse 13. And I want to take a description and read um, what does Jesus look like. We get a description of here of, of what Jesus looks like. Um, and again, we're going to relate the sword and the word and Jesus all together, which is amazing. I love how God connects everything. So, so starting here in Revelation... Starting in verse 13. Um, So this is John is writing this book. He has this revelation and the revelation is the revealing of Jesus, the second coming of the Messiah, the the king of of all kings, Lord of all lords. Uh, So we're going to pick it up here and this gives us a description of what Jesus looks like. Oftentimes we think of Jesus being meek and mild. and the word meekness in our men's study, we went through this. Meek is not weakness, meek is power under control, power restrained. You know, we think of Jesus as God, he has all the power of the world, he spoke the world into existence, and he's willingly going to the cross. At any point, he could have said no, and called down for the angels to free him, to to release him, he could have walked through the, the, the crowd, he could have done anything. We see this all throughout the Bible. You know, at one point the crowds are pressing in on him and they want to kill him because he's claimed to be God. They push him to the edge of the cliff and what does he do? He walks through them. At any point Jesus could have walked away from the crucifixion, could have walked away from that death. um, But he chose not to. He chose willingly to go to the cross. Um, And that's important. That's that power under control. That's what meekness is. He was almighty, all powerful, all God. And under control, with that power of restraint, he chose to lay down his life for us. And that's that's a, a very important thing to understand. But here in Revelation, we get to a description of what does Jesus look like. And I think this is awesome. So, starting at verse 13. And standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as stow, and his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. So the, the important part here, the description of him, I think, is amazing. It doesn't sound very meek and mild. It doesn't sound weak. This is, this is who Jesus always was, always is. Um, he hasn't changed. But we read here that, uh, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth. So now we've related the sharp sword, the word of God, Jesus himself, the words he speaks that he spoke the Bible into existence. He gave us exactly what he wanted us to hear. Um, We also read in Revelation, we won't go to, but chapter two, verse 12 and chapter two, verse 16, the sharp sword that comes from his mouth, That rightly divides. Jesus' words are always true, always right. No gray area, no ambiguity. So now let's fast forward to the end of Revelation. And we'll look at, uh, chapter 19 verse 19 so we're reading this is at the end um there's been a mighty army raised up against this is all the nations of the world that are coming against jesus um and we're just going to read through how he handles this this has all been like a a big climax to get to this point all these things that have taken place you know all coming against god and we've been over this we have our enemy is a threefold enemy it's our own sinful nature it's this world system and it's uh it's the the devil and his demons that's our threefold enemy and this world system this is what we're we're hearing here this is what we're going to read here the entire world all the nations of the world are coming to fight against God and we're going to see how God how Jesus handles that so revelation chapter 19 verse 19 then I saw the beast and the kings of the world and their armies gathered together to fight against the one sitting on the horse and his army. And the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who did mighty miracles on behalf of the beast, miracles that deceived all who had accepted the mark of the beast and who worshipped his statue. Both the beast and his false prophet were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Their entire army was killed by the sharp sword that came from the mouth of the one riding the white horse, and the vultures all gorged themselves on the dead bodies. So Jesus defeats the entire army, all the nations of the world, all their armies come together against him, And what does he do? He defeats them with one word, with one breath, and they're all gone. They're all wiped out. So we read, through that at the end, that Jesus is going to defeat his enemies with his word. And here at, at the end of Revelation, at the end of the turmoil, the fighting, that's how it ends. With one word, one breath, all, the, all of his enemies are dead. And uh, it's just, it's amazing. It's amazing how it all comes together. Um, and I, I do hope that this paints the picture and the magnitude of God's word. You know, how powerful God's word is and how powerful it is in our lives, how it speaks truth to our lives, how it encourages and motivates us and equips us to go do the work that he's called us to do. God doesn't take his word lightly. We shouldn't take his word lightly either. There is power in his word. And we, we have that, the ability to to tap into that power by reading his word, by spending time with him, by trusting in him. So, so we kind of took a, a long a long trail, side trail, but let's go back and finish chapter three of Romans. We'll finish up here in verse 27. We have a few verses left. So, Romans three twenty-seven. Can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It is based on faith. So we are made right with God, through faith not by obeying the law After all is God the God of the Jews only isn't he also the God of the Gentiles of course he is there is only one God and he makes people right with himself only by faith whether they are Jews or Gentiles Well then if we emphasize faith does this mean that we can forget about the law of course not. In fact, only when we have faith do we truly fulfill the law. So, Paul's saying here that we're made right with God by our faith in Jesus. That's it. Done. No other way. Um, and Jesus goes on to expand on this in Matthew chapter five, verse seventeen. And I want to see what Jesus' words say, because um, I do find it important. If you want to know what the character of God is, what is God thinking? Go look at what Jesus did and said here on earth. I mean, that's God on earth, fully human, fully God, giving us the example of how to live our lives. Um, and this is the, the last place we'll go. There's no more turning the page after this, but, but I do find it just important, so important. The whole Bible is important, but I, I find it's so important to look and see what did Jesus say and how did he live his life Because he sets the example for how we are to live our lives. Um, So this is Jesus speaking here. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17. Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. So that's the Old Testament pointing towards Jesus. That's what he's saying there. That they wrote about this, they prophesied about me. I came to accomplish what they said would happen, that I am the Messiah. I've come to the earth to save the earth, to save the people of this earth. So continuing on in verse 18, I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear. Not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So not even the smallest detail of God's word will disappear um, until it's achieved until it's fulfilled its purpose for the reason that God gave it to us for so continuing on in verse 19 so if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven but anyone who obeys God's law and teaches them will be called the greatest in the kingdom of heaven so well, I want to expand on this last part here about the teaching part Um, we can either ignore God's law and teach others to do the same or we can obey God's law God's word obey the Bible and teach others to do the same Um, and don't this isn't oh I'm not a pastor I'm not a teacher no no that's not what this is talking about what this is talking about when we have conversations with other people about the Bible we're teaching them when we have conversations with other people about Jesus we're teaching them When we profess to be a Christian, we are teaching by the way we live our lives. And that part's important. When we profess to be a Christian and we ignore God's commands, we ignore what the Bible says, we're teaching others to do the same. When we profess to be a Christian and we obey God's command, we do what the word of God says. When we pray for our enemies, we're teaching others to do the same by how we live our lives. We're teaching even when we don't realize it. All the people around us, when we profess to be a Christian, people are watching. How do we live? And do we live an example of, of what God calls out in his word? Do we live right with him? Or, or do we live and ignore what he's saying? Um, are we, you know, people around us are watching. Our friends are watching. Our family's watching. Our children are watching. So that's kind of how, how it all ties together. How do we live our lives? Do we take his word at face value, and do we apply it to our lives? That's it. Any questions? I have a bunch of questions. You have a bunch of questions? All right, that's good. So, what exactly are the Catholics teaching
1: about communion?
0: The so, so, the Catholic Church teaches that communion, that when you take the elements of communion, that it's not bread and wine that you're taking, it's, it's actual physical body you're eating, and it's, it's actual blood that you're drinking. That's what they teach, and they get that. There, there's one place in the Bible where Jesus said, This is my body, and this is my blood. So they take that sentence and they've made a doctrine out of it. They're teaching that that is that we're, when we're taking communion, this is his actual body and blood. But that's not what God says to do, God he says knows, no. that his whole council.
1: But they're saying by a miracle it is Yes they're
0: saying that the the priest the priest during this during this time has turned it in it started off as bread and wine but the priest through this time has turned it into Jesus actual body and blood and and they're taking that from from one place in the Bible. they're not looking at all the other places where Jesus talks about doing this in remembrance of me. They're taking the one place the one sentence you know where he says, this is my body, this is my blood. So that's that's the danger of, of that of people taking one one sentence and making a doctrine out of it. Teaching others that, oh, this is what God says. Well that's when I read the rest of the Bible and I put it all into context, that's not what God says. God says we're to do this in remembrance of Him, to remember the sacrifice that He made on the cross for our sins. Does that make sense?
1: And we were taught that it is absolutely the blood and the body. So they believe by some miracle, Yes. Uh, that every time they pray over the sacraments,
0: it turns into his body and blood. So like if they drop a if one of the pieces of they bread falls, falls on the off. floor, yep, That's right. yeah, they have to drink it all. And if one of the pieces falls on the floor, they are supposed to go and bury it in in the so earth. Do you remember? I don't know because we had to have that. I can't remember what the um, what that thing underneath they our be chin chin, because no crumbs. Yes. And they used to That's not legalistic. <laughs> and then they used to not
1: at the beginning it, it changed over the years but the priest would literally put the host on your tongue. Mm-hmm. I remember that. Yeah. Not and then it got to where we would take it. But we weren't allowed to touch it basically because it was Christ's body. Yeah. Well, they don't want you to touch it. They no, they do them. now. They yeah, they do, do now. now. But they did not. Yes. Yeah. When I was in, like, my first communion, they put the, what I don't know what it's called, that metal mm-hmm. thing underneath mm-hmm. you. They would, then you would stick your tongue out. Right. And they, they would push. put it on your tongue. We also did not take, we did not drink the wine. There was no wine. We never had grape juice or anything like that, ever. Only the priest drink. You know. We did not. Yes. We
0: the, did not. So the Catholic Church is, is huge, you know, mm-hmm. worldwide. So to say that Catholics all believe in this one thing is very hard, and they all have little different quirks and different things that they emphasize. But, but you can say that they, as being Catholic, they every Catholic Church I've ever known always believes that that is God's body and it is God's blood. Um, but then, after but that, then the, the different
1: but we all drank out of the same wine.
0: Yeah, that's Yeah, yep, so. As and, as I, as I, as and I don't mean to pick on the Catholics, the, the Protestant churches, the, the non denominational churches have done plenty of the same thing, taking one sentence, one verse, wrote in doctrine on that, and taking it completely out of context from God's whole word. Because um, I do think that people get hard on the Catholic Church, you know. Catholic Church is still pointing people to Jesus. They do still believe that Jesus is God's son, that he sacrificed himself willingly on the cross for our sins. And that's the important part. Now, all God's word is important, so I, I do think it's important to look at it correctly. Um, but they, there are people, especially in the Calvary Chapel denomination, which it is a denomination, <laughs> because um, people get very hard on the Catholic Church and they'll call it a cult, and that they're false teaching. Would I say that they're not teaching correctly in all aspects of doctrine? Absolutely. But I, I think every church does that also. But I think it's too far to call them a cult. Um, you're you're going to be surprised. They, the people that teach that way are going to be surprised. You're going to find many Catholic people in heaven. But in heaven, all this goes away. And that's, that was the point of of reading in Colossians 3.11 we're in Christ, that's all that matters is Christ, we're Christians, we're believers in Christ, that's it, it's not our denomination it's not this, that or the other and it's not to not take pride I'm very proud to be in America I'm very proud to live in this country I think it's the greatest country in the world Um, but I'm not defying my identity in that, I'm a Christian and maybe if I have to further identify myself everything else is after that, I'm a Christian I'm an American, I'm a man I'm white, I'm whatever it is yeah, but all that other stuff really isn't matter. I'm a Christian. That's it. I'm a citizen of heaven. This is temporary. And I think
1: it really opened to my eyes because I've read, read a lot of different books and things. And as you and I were speaking at one time it was like I don't know if we should use the word false prophets but they bring people to Jesus. But then the It there's no Oh yeah. But did you know <laughs> <Yep. it> to <laughs> and, say and because, the, because I was reading well, and I don't want to throw people under the bus, but there's so many So like, it, I don't know if you it's, call them evangelists or no. what do you call them that oh yeah. We get pulled in, which is yep. good because we need to be but then
0: there's a, some kind of a disconnect. So God God makes it clear all throughout the Bible, the many teachings on false teachers and false prophets. You know, Second Peter's one. Jeremiah is another one. And God makes it clear in Jeremiah that, that he allows them for his purpose, for a reason. He allows that to go on. I and I think the reason so he allows that... yep, false prophets? Yep. The false teachers and false prophets. That they're serving God to a point. They're still teaching falsely, but like... And I don't think it's a problem to call out their names. You know, it's kind of like we're told that there's wolves in sheep's clothing. The people that want to identify them as Christians that want to come in and and, and manipulate and, and steal and, and take away from Christians or whatever it is, well, we should absolutely call them out by name. You know, if there's a wolf outside the gate, you know, hey, there's a wolf out there and you should identify that. So like one for example would be Joel Olstein, who is a false teacher. Um, and and some people get upset by that and if the reason you can say that he's a false teacher, is you look at what he's teaching, you know, a lot of times when he gives a verse, he's taking it out of context. And there's often other times where he'll say the Bible says, but he doesn't give an address and the Bible doesn't say what he just said. And it all points back to to money for him. Um, you know, Oh, if you give, you'll get, and, and things like that. And this, there's a documentary on Netflix, um, Called the American Gospel, and that's what the American Gospel is. That's what—that's the gospel that goes out from this country more than the gospel of Jesus is this, this yes, prosperity gospel. And there's quite a few of them. Here's
1: the here's the seven
2: hundred. I think what it does is it makes you uh, oh if you look at what we, because we went through Second Peter before we went back into Genesis, before we uh, in Calvary, and um, I, I guess how I see it is that there's a reason there, there's a reason why we went through what we do with false teachers, false prophets, because you know what it has us do? It has us go back to the Word of God mm-hmm. and say to see if what they're is right. It's like, exactly. okay. And then you go, yes. Copeland. Wait, wait a minute. So I think it is an encouragement to, as Matt teaches, Dave's taught yeah. at Calvary, where we have been. Their biggest
0: thing is get into the Word, so you can say yeah. that that wasn't said Just there. Be it like the, the Bereans. You know, Paul goes to Berea and starts yeah. teaching them, and what do they do? They go back and study the Scriptures. Yeah. Well, is he teaching correctly or not? Yeah. And and God isn't going to give you a pass. Oh, I got to heaven, and I thought that this was right, but I got taught falsely. God's not gonna say, oh, you were ignorant or you were led astray, it's not your fault. No. We're told that we're responsible for this. We're responsible for what we believe. That the other people that we like can't find the information. Yeah. And other people whose teachings we choose to sit under, we're responsible for that choice. You know. And it's uh, mostly a thing of the heart. If people come to know Jesus, that's great, but now we're gonna give to get and the faith healing thing, you know, we'll go sell at the Pepsi Center. With these faith healers. Oh, if you have faith we'll heal you. Todd White is one of those guys and he'll go through um, like the mall and he'll just say, Hey, can I pray with you? And you know, we just want to see if we can heal you. Is there anything wrong? And he'll wait for somebody to say, Yeah, my back's kinda of sore. I'll say, Well, why don't you sit down and let's pray for you, let's just take a look at you and he'll pick up their legs and he'll say, Oh well one leg's longer than the other. That's that's the problem. Let's just see if God wants to heal you right now and, and I'll pray. And what he does is he puts all this emphasis on this leg that's supposedly shorter, and he's kind of pulling on, tugging on it, and praying. And the whole other time with his other hand, this is sleight of hand thing, he's rotating the other foot up, and it gives it the impression when you're looking down, like when the camera's looking down on it, that the leg is getting longer when it's people not. Do do this? Yeah. Yes. And people actually do that. But quite, people my get my caught up in that. that.
2: I worked with, she was like a big Todd White thing, and she, it was so hard for me. Uh, I was like, um, you know, that's because well, they'll film it. It's all within the camera. It's always how it's done. It's almost like a magic trick. Yeah. It's just kind of
0: sad. Yeah. And send us your money, and yeah. we'll pray for you, and you'll get healed. And it, and if you're not healed, it's because you didn't give us enough. You didn't You didn't have enough faith to give God enough. And This idea that God's church. The gospel is so huge. Oh, yeah. Well, like it's so church. huge.
2: What's the other big one? There's
0: several huge, huge ones, and they are multi-millions. Oh, yeah. Oh over yeah. and over and over again, and it's all good. But
1: they bring you in, which is all good because it's, they do bring us in,
0: yep. but, then but don't like, stay you there. we were trying to, to explain to me, cause I, was, I was always
1: reading like Jesus only, Sarah, Sarah, Sarah Young, Young, Young She's loved another that one. I that series. She right? start, but that's the other
2: thing. You start. They started in a like, okay, this is. It was good. It it helped me a lot through like. Tell no, it wasn't. And
1: all well, of I think. This other stuff, but then it, it things get weird.
0: Oh yeah, and I think most false teachers probably don't start off that way. Wow. They probably start off on the right path, but then they get led astray. You know, there's many things like, well, if if I only do this, I'll, I'll attract more people. Well, if that's your goal is to attract people, we're told back in David's time not to be counting the numbers. Don't don't count the the people. And David got in trouble for that. You know, so if that's your goal, oh, I, and it's almost like they feel justified. Oh. I've, If I have more people and if I have more money coming in, you know, Joel he makes like $76 million every weekend. You know, Mm -hmm. they got in trouble here not too long ago. They claimed that they lost like 200 some thousand dollars in tithes, which was insured. Their tithes, I guess are big enough. It's insured. So from what I understand, the insurance company pays it out. Then like a year later. Yeah. And then, and then like a year later, a plumber's doing work and finds, 200 some thousand dollars in the wall yeah, you know absolutely. so it's just like how much, how much is enough how much greed do you need and it's crazy and it is out there and we are to be aware of it but we're also responsible for ourselves who we choose to sit under and God makes it clear to us it's not that we've been deceived beyond being God making it clear to us God will bring people into our lives that will speak the truth and it's our choice well do I really want to chase after this prosperity thing or do I really want to follow Jesus and pursue him even though that means I'm not prosperous, even though that means I'm poor. And, and I, you know, am I okay with that? Am I okay with giving up everything I have to follow Jesus? You see that with the rich man. He says, I've done all these things. And he says, oh, that's great. There's one last thing you need to do. Go sell all you have. And he walks away sad, you know. Doesn't say he walks away and, and doesn't doesn't do what Jesus said, but he walks away sad. That was a hard thing for him to accept. You know, I I don't want to give up everything to follow you. I like all the stuff I have, you know. And so people have that choice. So.
1: Yeah, I just found that interesting because I never thought of it that way. Because i I listened to so many um, evangelists. Yep. And, and I've learned something from every single one of them. I have say that I did not. Yeah. I have learned a lot. But then now I go back and listen to some of them and I'm like, i kind of not into it
0: yeah, something's just not quite right. Something's just
1: not quite right for me there.
0: And if if they're pointing to you, another way you can tell Joel's to often point to your yourself. Oh, it's self, you know. Do this, do that. It's you know, it's about you. No, it's not about us at all. Yes. If if they're not pointing people to Jesus, if you're people, if you're teaching, not, if the teacher's not pointing you to Jesus. That's a huge red flag. It's Jesus, Jesus alone. That's it. No human, no self, no this, you know, do we encourage to do the right things? Yes. But, oh, it's, if, if you had more faith, you'd be healed. Oh, absolutely not. They're completely false. When you look at God's whole word, many places it tells you that that's not true. That it's not faith that heals you. It's your faith in Jesus that saves you and that God will exercise your faith. Yes. But if you had more faith, you'd be healed. Or if you had more faith, you'd have money or if no, that's so not true. So that can turn
2: around and people will be like, "Well, I don't have enough faith, though." So then you kind of get, "Then I don't want to go to church. I don't want to. I don't want to believe in Jesus because he, you know." Do you see where it can get all twisted up? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Yeah. So. Now. The other one
0: you
2: had
1: brought up, and I thought it was really interesting because Dan used to say this to me. I'd say, "Well, I read the Bible before." But I never understood it. And Dan would say, God wasn't ready for you to understand that part of it. Mm-hmm. And now you do. Now your eyes are open. Are and I thought that was pretty... He was saying that at the very end, right before he passed. And it was just interesting that he picked up on that. And I never thought about it that way. It was like, well, I never... <laughs> this never resonated with me. It never resonated. Mm-hmm, yeah. And then all of a sudden it was like, well,
0: that's pretty darn simple. <laughs> <laughs> <course>. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? And uh, there's times, and part of that is receiving the Holy Spirit. So we're given the promise that when you become a believer, the Holy Spirit comes and, and lives inside of you and, and guides you, you know. Um. But I can remember, so I always question, like, was I really saved when I was going to the Catholic Church and all that? And, and I kind of leaned towards no, or kind of leaned towards had I died... 12 years ago I was not going to heaven Um, and one one way I can come across that is we started dating like 19 years ago and we started dating we bought each other Bibles we were going to church and doing all these things Um, but it was all kind of like like good deeds you know good works Uh, at that point I'd never in my opinion never received Jesus in my heart but I can remember reading through the Bible you know or read through the Bible because that's what my parents did they read through the Bible I must be what you're supposed to do as a Christian so I can remember being like at work, we had to take lunch breaks. We were going for Scott contracting and they knew law. You, if you're driving a semi, you had to take a lunch break. So, okay, I'll just read the Bible, my lunch break. And I can remember reading the Bible, like, man, I don't understand this. And I remember to get into where Stephen was martyred. And I'm like, I don't think I want to be a part of this group. This sounds crazy, you know? And, but then I can go through and read it now after I know I've been saved and yeah, I understand it more now, you know, but I didn't have the Holy Spirit leading and guiding me through it before. Mm-hmm. And it was just words on a page, if that mm-hmm. kind of makes sense too. But I uh, absolutely, as you become a believer and, and you spend more time in God's word, does God reveal more and more to you? Yes. Yeah, it's that reveal. Mm-hmm. I think that's the word I was looking for. I think that's what Dan used to say. It's yep. opened your eyes, you, you're understanding it. And you're in a different situation at that point. You read it before, but I never understood this. Well, you're in a different season in your life.
1: Dan would crack me up too. He'd go, "Well, the Bible, I go. It does not say that." And he'd I go, "Doggone, <laughs> like, oh, you're right. <laughs> yeah. right." Oh yeah, oh yeah. Does not. Yes, yeah. it does. <laughs> and I don't-